And now for a less doing special in between episode, Ari talks with Justin Mendelssohn of the Perfect Burpee. Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast. Less Doing or Living. Hi, I'm Ari Mizell, and this is The Art of Less Doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Less Doing Podcast. This is my first in between episode, so I know that that's become sort of a popular phrase, and I first heard that from Dave McCraney over at the "You Are Not So Smart" podcast, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, basically, we have the problem of having a, a good problem of having too much content, and we have a sort of a specific schedule that we follow on things. And uh, there are going to be times when things come up that are just timely. So today's interview uh, is a quick one with Justin Mendelson of the Perfect Burpee, and he's got a Kickstarter campaign that launched today. So you want to listen to this, and if you're interested in it, you got to get over there right now and support this campaign because he's making a really cool product that'll help you exercise more efficiently and make the process a little bit more enjoyable. So the only announcement I want to make is that we still are getting people signed up for the Less Doing Live event that's May 1st through 3rd. And if you go to lessdoinglive.com, you can sign up for a free one-hour coaching call with one of my Less Doing certified coaches where you will actually get coaching advice that you can use and make actionable in your life right away. And you'll find out about the live event. So without further ado, here's Justin Mendelson and the perfect burpee. And now for feature interview. So now I'm speaking with Justin Mendelson, who is the creator of the Perfect Burpee and a bunch of other cool stuff that we're going to talk about. So Justin, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So can we talk about HackFit first and sort of how that, in your background, how that sort of came about? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. So HackFit um, was a company that I founded about 18 months ago um, in the summer of 2013, um, which really was um, which really was a culmination of my interests, um, or I guess you could say my passion for fitness um, and living an active lifestyle, um, but also with the world of technology um, and uh, entrepreneurship. So HackFit was um, a series of hackathon events, which if people don't know what a hackathon is, it's essentially a 48-hour coding competition um, where people build apps, hardware devices, things like that. And HackFit was essentially um, a healthy, active version of a hackathon. Um, and uh, we hosted them all over the country, um, had hundreds of entrepreneurs um, who were really passionate about fitness coming in and building everything from like running apps to heart rate uh, monitoring devices, um, And it was really kind of like the first healthy um, hacking, quote unquote, um, competition series to uh, to come about. And really, since the only one Um, and uh, just recently kind of transitioned over to working on new projects, which has included uh, Perfect Burpee. That's kind of the, the background behind it. Yeah. Okay. so now you are you're definitely a hacker. There's no question about that. And so how does the. uh how does the perfect burpee come about? 
So Perfect Burpee came about, um, I was doing some work. Um, I got to know the founder of Spartan Race really well, Joe DeSena, who is an incredibly inspirational guy. And um, Joe's obsessed with burpees. Yep, 300 every morning, right? Yep. And I don't know if, if anybody has tried to do like over 100, but even like doing 60, you know, is a challenge for most people. Um, and it starts to suck after the fifth one. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Um, and Joe kind of imprinted in my mind, like how, um, incredible of a workout a burpee could be. Um, and I was actually sitting at one of the Spartan races, watching people, um, go through an obstacle. And if they miss the obstacle doing burpees and I said, you know, this is really, this is really something that's, uh, pretty cool and I'm going to give it a shot. So I tried to do a hundred burpees in my apartment and, um, you know, just being in my living room, I kind of rolled out a yoga mat and I started doing burpees on it. And, um, the entire time my feet were hanging off, my hands were hanging off. Uh, once I got sweaty, I was like kind of slipping on it. And I very quickly found that a yoga mat just really isn't conducive to high intensity training like that. So I started thinking, I wonder if there's a mat or some sort of surface workout surface that's perfect for a burpee. And, um, when I couldn't really find anything, I came up with the name and the idea for perfect burpee. So that's kind of how it came about. Okay. So what, what is it about the mat that makes it so different? First of all? Yeah. So the, the mat itself, um, is different from, from other products in the market. First and foremost, um, because, it's price accessible to the masses, right? So like most people who would want to outfit a home gym, you're going to have to spend a hefty amount of money um, doing so. Um, we wanted to create a product that was, uh, you know, comparable in price to a yoga mat that you would buy. Now, not necessarily like a $30 yoga mat you might find at Target, but definitely comparable to some of the more high-end yoga mats around the $85 to $100 price point. Um, the mat itself is larger than most yoga mats. So we, we did a lot of testing with CrossFit athletes, um, and triathletes doing like cross training to find the perfect dimensions, which is came out to be about six and a half feet by a little over three feet wide. Um, and then the material itself we designed to be durable enough to withstand shoes, but also have um, really, really incredible, uh, wet grip, we call it. Um, so if you sweat on it, you're still not really going to slip. So, um, that was really important to us. And then the last piece is that it's just really comfortable. It's really comfortable to do high intensity interval training on most of the mats that I've tried out that exist in the market. Like if you did over 60 burpees on them, your hand, your wrists are going to start to hurt. It's just really not an ideal surface. So, um, we really wanted to design something that was just specifically made for athletes doing kind of vigorous training. And, and how many, so this is like a sort of a tangent sort of, but, uh, I'm, I'm a big materials guy, which you probably don't know this, but I actually have, I've created a material, uh, which is called papier tile, which is a recycled, uh, paper and economic or eco-friendly resin that I created years ago when I was doing much more green building. But, um, yeah. Material science has always been really interesting to me. So how, how many different materials did you go through to try and, and, and find the right one? 
We pretty much went through every single yeah. competitor's mat. So actually, you know, I know um, we had talked about, you know, speaking sort of on this topic of hacking Kickstarter, or sort of ensuring success for Kickstarter. Um, so I don't have, I have an engineering background, but not really a material science background. So the first thing I was thinking was like, how the hell do I invent a material, like a mat material? <laughs> um, so we did two things. First off, we ordered every single competitor's mat um, or yoga mat um, that we could find on Amazon. Um, and that cost a lot of money. So what we did was we ordered them, we got them in, sort of looked at them, felt the materials, took notes about what their characteristics were, and then returned them. <laughs> and that's the beauty of Amazon. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for that, for saying that. Um, <laughs> but um, that was a really effective way to test out a lot of different materials. The other thing that worked really well for us um, was uh, I, I started to get really overwhelmed by looking into like Alibaba and like all the different manufacturers that go on in China and Taiwan. and Right, because it's not, it's not just a matter of finding the material. It's also a matter of being able to source it. Exactly. Um, so we were looking at like natural rubbers and plastics and combinations, and it was just really overwhelming. So I reached out to a good friend of mine who works at a kitchenware company, does manufacturing in China all the time. And he uh, made my life dramatically, you know, unbelievably um, easier when he told me about a tool called Panjiva. Um, it's a website. It's P-A-N-J-I-V-A. Um, and you can essentially look up the manufacturers who make any company's product um, overseas. Oh, I didn't so, know about that one. Yeah, it, it was it was huge for us. Um, so I checked it out. The I think like the minimum thing like rate is like ninety nine bucks for a month or something. But he actually had a subscription, so he helped me out. Um, and we just looked up every single yoga company that exists and where they, what factories they use. And then I just started calling up these factories in Taiwan and they told me exactly what they were making things with. So, um, that kind of like advanced the project so much faster than me trying to like do the material science myself, um, and just make guesses about what things were made out of and how. So that's really interesting, you know, and, and part of the reason that I, I, I do want you to provide this kind of detail in this conversation is that, you know, part of what my audience does or is inspired to do a lot of times is they come up with an idea and then they want to turn it into a business. And, you know, it's, uh, when it comes to actually creating physical products, there's just so much stuff that people just don't know. So this kind of this kind of information is really helpful to a lot of people. But OK, so now. You, you figured out the material and then how do you go about actually getting it manufactured, you know, designed? What, what, what's that process look like? So um, I was actually, at first I was really intimidated, I guess you could say, from calling factories in Taiwan because I didn't really know what to expect. Um, but the thing I would say to, to, to people is it's really unbelievable how, um, how well these these companies overseas um, cater to customers here in the U.S. Um, they do it all the time. So one of the factories I called up had somebody who spoke English fluently. Another factory had somebody who um, was based in the U.S. That is sort of like their liaison. 
Um, and so I ended up working with this one factory with a liaison based in the U.S., which was very, very helpful. And I would highly recommend it. Um, almost like a, um, a manufacturing um, partner in the U.S., but they represent a factory in somewhere overseas. Um, so the guy here in the U.S. was able to help me. He, you know, understands the nuances of the English language, which when you're talking engineering specifications, sometimes it's important to make sure that you have somebody like that. Um, so he really helps me kind of develop the specifics of the product and then kind of he actually would travel over to China and kind of talk to them. And it was very, very helpful. So I would highly recommend um, a middleman or sort of like a liaison based in the same country where you're located. It was a big help. Okay. So now where are you? You're actually having it manufactured in Taiwan or in China or where? Yeah, we're having it manufactured in Taiwan. Um, and so we, the reason why we're doing Kickstarter in the first place was because, um, you know, we got to a certain point in discussions and, and um, they kind of told me what their minimum order quantities are. And for them, uh, the, the amount that it came out to be was about 35 grand um, for the minimum order. And that, to me, was a little bit like, well, <laughs> I don't have 35 grand sitting around. Um, so it was kind of an obvious uh decision to go via crowdfunding. We were, I was actually originally considering trying to launch the business without crowdfunding, but at that number, and that's kind of typical for a lot of manufacturers overseas, um, depending on what you're making, um, that dollar figure just made me kind of say, okay, yep, we're definitely doing crowdfunding. Okay. So, so now let's, let's get into the crowdfunding aspect and the, uh, the, uh, Kickstarter hacking, if you will. So talk us through that process. Yeah. So the first constraint, I guess to me, um, what I've come to, to learn about Kickstarter is that people who do it really well are just simply those who plan, right. Um, and do create a process for themselves and follow it. Um, I've seen a lot of people or I've heard, you know, talk to a lot of people who have done Kickstarters that don't really plan very well. And, it tends not to go as well as they had hoped. Um, so the first thing we wanted to do was make sure we planned everything out really carefully. And I put a number of constraints on myself. Um, I put a constraint on myself that I wouldn't spend any more than $500, um, both on like the development and engineering work with the factory. And then also with like launching the campaign. And um, that was at times really difficult, but it was a fantastic constraint to use because it, helped us, um, you know, force us to be creative. Um, so the first thing that I did, uh, was like testing demand. So you're going to have to assess like, are strangers going to buy this product? Like talking to a friend, talking to somebody for us, like at the, at the gym, if I'm standing there, like, of course they're going to say, yes, this is cool. I would consider it, but I wanted to have complete strangers who I didn't know click a buy button that they would purchase this product and really assess like my conversion percentages. And, um, so what we did was we bought a really cheap, uh, like prototype, um, from home Depot. And I kind of cut it up. I used duct tape and I made something that semi looked like one of, uh, something we wanted as a finished good. And then I Photoshopped the pictures, um, to make it look real. 
And I'm pretty decent with Photoshop, not great, but you could probably like outsource that type of task. Um, and then I created a landing page. Um, I'm also pretty decent with like WordPress, so it wasn't that hard for me to create a landing page, but I know I've also used Unbounce. So if people like don't have coding experience, Unbounce is a really good tool. And then there, you know, there's tons of other ones to create a landing page pretty easily. Um, and then what we did was we launched uh, campaigns via Google AdWords and Facebook AdWords. Um, but because we had this, you know, marketing dollar constraint of essentially zero, <laughs> um, what what we did was we got a bunch of free coupons. So a lot of people, I don't know if they know or not, but like there are so many free coupons you can find for Google AdWords and Facebook AdWords. Um, so we got like several hundred dollars worth of free ad campaigns and we drove about 2000 unique visitors via paid search um, to this landing page. And we set a goal for ourselves that we wanted to convert 1% or higher of those, um, which are essentially like going to the website, looking through what it has to say, and then clicking a buy button. Um, and of course, like we didn't have like credit card stuff set up. So what I did was I made it look kind of like a buy page. And then when they clicked the buy button, it bumped them to a page that said, thanks for supporting us. Like put in your email if you want to be notified when we launch the Kickstarter. Um, so that was really, really important to kind of assess demand. Um, the other thing I would recommend too is like testing price sensitivity. So like the price point of your Kickstarter is unbelievably important. Um, like that's a make or break decision and it's really tough to decide upon. So the other thing I would recommend is doing something called uh, a Van Westen door pricing analysis. I don't know Ari, if you've ever heard of, no, not at all. Please tell me. Um, but I did, a, I did a lot of research about like how to test price sensitivity and the biggest, or I guess the simplest way to do it is this thing called Van Westen door. It's like VAN space. W-E-S-T-E-N-D-O-R-P. And um, if you look on like Google, you can find out how to do it. But it's essentially like four really simple questions um, that you ask people. And uh, from, you know, you can get like, if you have more than like 30 or 40 responses, you can then graph the answers and get like a price range of people, what people are willing to pay for your product. So I built like a really simple, another really simple landing page. Um, you can actually, people can go to it if they want. It's still up. It's at prelaunch.perfectburpee.com and um, see kind of how we did it. Can you, can you give us an idea like what the questions were like? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was like, at what price would you consider our mat to be priced so low that you would feel the quality couldn't be very good? So it essentially means like, is what, what price do you think it's too cheap? Um, you ask another question saying, at what price do you think it's a bargain, but a great buy for the money? The next question is at what price is it getting expensive, but you look at it as like a great, a high end good. And then at what price do you think that it's so expensive that you would not consider buying it? And you just let people type in any number you don't like bracket the answers. You don't have it like be bubbles. You just have it be an open thing. Um, and you'll, you'll, from just those four questions, you'll get, uh, exactly what the price range is. If you have like, a, you know, a fair, decent number of people answering the questions. 
Um, That's really interesting. Yeah. So that kind of gave us our price range. And we had, we originally were thinking of charging like $150 for our mats. And I knew it was high, but um, that's kind of what a lot of our competitors were charging. But from doing this, I just drove like, you know, about a hundred people to it from friends and family on Facebook. And we found that that was way too, like way outside of the range of price um, acceptance. So that was a good indicator that we needed to like reevaluate our pricing. Um, So if you're doing Kickstarter or really like any business, you really need to do something like that. It's really critical, especially if it's product business. So, um, so what was the price it ended up being? So we decided that, um, about like $89 was really like a sweet spot, um, for like this high end perception of a, of a good. Um, so we decided that for retail, we're going to price it around a hundred bucks. And for the Kickstarter, we were going to price it around this $89 point um, as sort of like a Kickstarter special um, to really make sure that we could drive an optimal number of people to back the project um, to just get us going. Um, even though that like obviously cuts on our margins a little bit, um, we wanted to make sure we like optimize the, the purchasing process for people. Okay. So, and then now when are you launching? So we actually launch next week um, and we launch um, on the 14th at 9 p.m. So that's another thing that's kind of uh, a big decision for people. So like when to launch and how to launch. Um, so what, well, one of the other things that we decided was that like we wanted to stack the deck to ensure success for a project. Um, so a huge success factor of almost any Kickstarter or Indiegogo is how well the project does on the first day in the first 24 hours. Right. Sure. So, um, there's a number of reasons for that. There's plenty of like blogs about it, but essentially the easy explanation is, is that like Kickstarter has an algorithm of looking at projects and it looks at how many backers you have, how much funding you've raised, And then it essentially divides by the number of days it's been live. So on day one, you're dividing by one. So that's the day when the number is going to be highest. Um, So the more backers you have, the more money you've raised, the more chance you have of being featured on Kickstarter, which would, you know, could be huge. So what we decided to do, um, a lot of people plan launch parties for their Kickstarter to kind of like help get the word out on day one. And I think the biggest launch party I'd heard about was like 200 people. And uh, a friend of mine said, I bet you can't best that number. Um, so I said, you know, how could I launch a Kickstarter to over 500 people? And that sounds kind of crazy. Like if you're just, I don't have 500 friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's like, how do I do that? And the idea I came up with was, well, what if I launched the Kickstarter at like an industry event? And for me, that would be like a fitness expo or something, but that costs a lot of money. So what I decided to do was uh, actually plan an event that would be sort of like an an industry event, Um, get other producers, other organizers, other volunteers to produce this free open to the public event in Boston where I live 
um, and, uh, and have the Kickstarter sort of be like the finale of the experience. So what we ended up doing, I connected with a few other people um, who are active in the fitness networks in Boston, and we're producing an event called the 2015 Boston Fitness Gala. And uh, we made it free. We made it look really cool. Um, we got, we even have like sponsor, like fitness companies sponsoring the event. So, um, the sponsors are like covering the cost of it, but now I have over 850 people RSVP for that event. Um, and so we're going to be launching our Kickstarter to over 850 people, which is going to be absolutely huge. Um, so I think my biggest advice would be like, think about what you're going to do on day one how can you make, how can you build a huge list? How can you launch it to a huge number of people? Um, so that's kind of like what I did to, to, um, elevate the exposure on that first day. Very, really, really fascinating. And, and then, uh, I, I know, I think you said it already, but what is the goal? The total goal? So our funding goal is 20,000. Okay, good. Um, and people have asked me, well, you need 35,000. Like, why is your funding goal 20? And, um, that's another tactic that people, uh, need to think about. Um, it's really important to crush your Kickstarter number because if it gets funded, people are like, Oh wow. Like, okay, now I'm going to actually get this if I back it. And it's a positive feedback loop. So like once you get funded, the more people fund you and you know, it all, increases, um, exponentially from there. So you should always set your Kickstarter budget or level, um, lower than the money you actually need to raise. And that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but, uh, <laughs> ends up, it ends up working. So I'm kind of banking on the fact that once we pass 20 K it'll actually kick in like a positive feedback loop and we'll, you know, end up making 35 or, or more. So, Okay. Well, so we're, we're going we're gonna to wrap up here because uh, we're going to be launching this during the campaign. Um, actually, this is going to be one of our special episodes. So, Justin, you're going to be able to pick you know, when you're going to want this to launch. So people listening to this right now, you're going to want to go over to Kickstarter today and get on this. So, uh, Justin, just tell people where they can find out more, where they can get into the campaign, and how they can get one of the perfect burpees. Yeah, sounds great. So um, I think people should check out perfectburpee.com um, as the, uh, the location for all the cool photos and, and description of the product. And uh, that'll make sure that you get to uh, our Kickstarter campaign. So perfectburpee.com, it's spelled uh, perfect, B-U-R-P-E-E.com. Awesome. Okay, well, Justin, thank you so much. Good luck with the campaign. And I hope everybody gets their perfect burpee on sounds great thanks so much ari appreciate the time hello everyone thanks for listening to the less doing podcast if you want to find out more information of the show we would love to hear from you you can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at ari's blog see the show notes for this episode and also look at all the other episodes before this if you want to send us a voicemail we would love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show you go to lessdoing.com, click on contact, and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a, a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is 
at Ari Mizell and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.